Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read. I'm writing this from my mother's apartment. It's called Orange. All I could think about was being written into her life story. She made up a story back What was the inspiration on. for the story? My story is called Cigarettes. What was the genesis? Testing. I used to be almost dependent be on voice. I want to talk to you. <laughs> and the conversation starts. Hello, and welcome to Off the Page, a podcast of stories, essays, and poetry from the Stanford University writing community. In each episode, a Stanford author will read a piece of their writing and then talk to us about their craft and process. I'm Mark Lebowski, Jones Lecturer in the Creative Writing Program. In this episode, Jordan Baron goldman will read her short story, The Lock, which won second place in the 2018 Bocock Garrard Fiction Contest. Jordan Baron goldman is a member of the class of 2018. She is a Bay Area native who majored in American studies and minored in creative writing. Three months after Beatrice's last night in psychiatric care, her mother Mary finally broached the subject at the East Village Wives bi-monthly book club meeting. All things considered, Beatrice was surprised it hadn't happened sooner. There had certainly been plenty of opportunities for it. The Independence Day block party the Geiger family's annual chocolate-making event, or even the previous book club meeting at Mrs. Jefferson's house. Beatrice had been near certain the Jeffersons would be the site of her mother's ultimate reveal. She spent the entire night hunched on the edge of the couch with her hands tangled in her lap, trying her best to listen to Mrs. Bellow's rant against the main characters of Where'd You Go, Bernadette? A high-pitched ringing in her ears, Beatrice would shudder every time Mrs. Jefferson walked by, topping off Mary's glass with their favorite brand of rosé whenever the gossip began to waver. Normally, it took only a few drinks for Beatrice's mother to go cherry red in the cheeks and say something she wasn't supposed to, but somehow they managed to leave the party with Beatrice's reputation mostly intact. With that miscalculation aside, Beatrice knew something would go wrong at this month's meeting, which Mary had agreed to host six months in advance. Beatrice had felt it early in the day when she came downstairs to find her mother already sampling the wines. The red is better, said Mary, puckering her lips. But what if it stains the books? She took a sip of the white and grimaced. Not right, she murmured. Not quite right. She went back and forth between the two for the rest of the morning, only deciding upon the red. It highlights the novel's romantic themes, she announced to no one in particular, when Beatrice reminded her of a hair appointment at two. The usual crowd of tipsy PTA moms never spent more than an hour discussing character motives or narrative themes before diving into the night's real festivities. By eight o'clock, they were using their copies of The Time Traveler's Wife as coasters, Mrs. Wilkinson's paperback serving as a quaint cheese and cracker plate. Beatrice made an appearance at the very beginning while the guests strolled in one by one. Only after Beatrice had given a dozen women passably warm hugs did Mary give her tacit permission to leave. Beatrice retreated to her bedroom, where she sat and leaned against the door. Two clean circles where doorknob and lock had once been sat inches above her scalp. As long as she leaned back with all her weight, no one could push the door open. After a half hour or so, she heard the clack of high heels on the stairs. She could feel the vibration of steps in the wood at her back. Mrs. McIntyre and Mrs. Milgram were apparently on a self-guided tour of the upper floor of the house, commenting on the organization of the master bedroom and the selection of diplomas and certificates lining the hallway. "'My Caroline is taking a course in interior design. I wonder what she would say about this layout,' said Mrs. McIntyre. Said Mrs. Milgram, 
Oh, did I tell you? Amy was just nominated for an undergraduate journalism award. Can you believe it? She was always an excellent writer, even at a very young age. Is this Beatrice? said Mrs. McIntyre. Beatrice heard the floorboards creak under the woman's weight. I didn't know she had gotten so tall. Beatrice suspected they were looking at the photo of her that hung by her father's tie closet. A photographer at a cousin's lakeside wedding had taken it at a moment when Beatrice didn't know she was being watched. She was standing by herself at the edge of the water, shoes cast aside and her bare feet inches from the tide. Half turned towards the camera, the slight upturn of her mouth suggested the beginnings of a smile. Her parents had seen the photo in the wedding album and immediately requested a copy. Look how lovely you are here, Mary had said. We have so few photos of you like this. And then, carefully, you look so happy. Beatrice could remember that moment by the water and didn't have the heart to tell her mother that she hadn't been happy at all. She had just booked her September flight to Colorado and was trying her hardest to feel excited. At least the water had felt nice that day, rushing between her toes. Colorado is just so far away, Beatrice heard Mrs. Milgram whisper. I told Mary to talk her out of it. I would never let my girls fly away like that. Did you see Ellen Cartwright's daughter? Jules just gets more beautiful every year. No, did they come in just now? I hear Ellen and Rick drive upstate to see her every weekend. That's a girl who loves her family, and look how successful she is. Beatrice found herself holding her breath. Daughters rarely came to the book club meetings unless their mothers had a reason to keep them close by. Jules, high school valedictorian and four-time winner of the East Village Elegance Pageant, was not a regular attendee. Whenever she did make an appearance, it was always with something impressive to share. She won a community service award. She booked a regional TV commercial. She saved a young child from drowning at the community pool. Of course, the boy had not been drowning precisely, but he had wandered towards the deep end with his flotation cuffs cast aside. The pool owners had offered Jules honorary lifeguard status regardless, although she graciously declined. Jules and Beatrice had never been friends. Beatrice suspected it had something to do with the brightness of Jules's eyes, or the straightness of her smile, or the way she could hold a champagne flute as if it were a natural extension of her neatly manicured hand. Beatrice carried herself clumsily, her smile was always too wide or too thin. Mrs. McIntyre and Mrs. Milgram eventually moved back down to the parlor. Beatrice stayed hidden for as long as she could, but at nine o'clock she received a text from her mother commanding another appearance. Beatrice flirted with the idea of escaping outside through a window. She could crawl to the edge of the rooftop, make a scratchy landing in the recently groomed hedges, and start running in any direction. But then she remembered the hole in her door. She was still earning back the lock. Before leaving, Beatrice crouched and peered through the space where the missing deadlock had once been. She waited for a lady's shadow to dance back down the staircase before she, too, made her way to the party. Once downstairs, Beatrice managed to hide in plain sight for nearly 20 seconds before Mrs. Abernathy, who had sold half the houses on Beatrice's street, found her in the kitchen. Mrs. Blumenstein and Mrs. Newman, who together had sold the next street over, followed closely behind. "'Your mother didn't mention how thin you've gotten,' exclaimed Mrs. Abernathy. Before Beatrice could stop her, she had taken Beatrice's wrists in her hands. "'You have to tell me your secret. No freshman 15 for you.' She turned her head back to Mrs. Blumenstein, laughing. "'We should fatten her up. She makes the rest of us look positively gluttonous.' 
she lifted Beatrice's wrists higher up in the air and shook them like maracas. Mrs. Blumenstein and Mrs. Newman giggled approvingly, and Beatrice watched the skin on Mrs. Abernathy's upper arms wobble. "'I think my mom needs me,' said Beatrice. She slipped her hands back through Mrs. Abernathy's grip. "'It was nice to see you. Thank you so much for coming.' She dashed into the hallway, narrowly avoiding Mrs. Barnes, president of the PTA, in the doorway. She then dodged Mrs. McElroy at the entrance of the dining room. Mrs. McElroy had brought her husband along, but he spoke to no one, only there to hold his wife's novel and wine. Beatrice had always felt that Mr. McElroy, much like her own father, could be easily replaced with an expensive handbag. Beatrice entered the living room and located her mother out on the patio, conversing with Mrs. Myers, the secretary to the president of the East Village Country Club, and Mrs. Cartwright, the president's wife. Beside Mrs. Cartwright stood Jules, who looked perfectly at ease amongst the mothers in their Sunday best. "'I agree, it's absolutely unacceptable,' Beatrice heard Mary say. Beatrice rounded a love seat, putting distance between herself and Mrs. Klein, the family doctor, who had emerged from the kitchen and was now speaking with Mrs. Blackwell, the family lawyer, by the hors d'oeuvres. A few yards from the French doors that opened up to the patio, Beatrice saw her mother take a heavy step back, ankle rolling in her bright red pump. "'Are you all right, Mary?' she could hear Mrs. Cartwright ask. Beatrice's mother waved her hand dismissively, giggled insistently at her stumble, and took a sip of wine as the other women looked on. "'I've told Arthur a million times to call someone about these floorboards,' she said, "'but he's so forgetful, always thinking about work, work, work. "'That's where he is now, you know, in a meeting, missing out on all this fun. "'But back to the matter, you're right, completely right.' The state of things is absolutely unacceptable. I hear there's a campaign to have the sheriff step down, said Mrs. Myers. I knew he wasn't a good fit. His priorities weren't in the right place. Outsiders never understand what's best for the community like us homegrown do. Yes, of course, Mary gasped. I can't stop watching the news these days. People are killing each other on the other side of the highway over gangs and drugs. But instead of dealing with that mess, oh, you have to hear this, when Beatrice had her incident, I'm sure you know all about this, Kathy is such a damned gossip, they sent half a dozen officers. There are some awful young people over there, real threats to society, but instead they come to handcuff my daughter, who only really needed a stern talking to. Ridiculous. Beatrice's mother gave a barking laugh of disbelief, loud enough to make Mrs. Myers flinch beside her. Mrs. Cartwright and Jules nodded politely, Mrs. Cartwright's hand pressed firmly into her daughter's back. Beatrice had come within feet of the patio doors, but quickly turned at her mother's laugh, walking back the way she came. Mrs. Myers was known for two things, her low-cut dresses and her uncontrollable mouth. Beatrice knew that within minutes, her name would fill every corner of the house in a cacophony of sympathetic mutterings, with Beatrice's mother standing bravely at its center shiny-eyed and ready to accept all advice and consolations. Beatrice couldn't help but wonder if after a few drinks too many, this had all been very intentional. Beatrice retreated up the stairs, but did not enter her bedroom upon hearing Mrs. McElroy's voice emanating from the inside. Very neat, she could hear Mrs. McElroy titter. Very neat indeed. You can hardly tell the girl lives here. If only my boys could keep so clean. Beatrice ducked into the bathroom and closed the door. 
She sat on the lid of the toilet with her chin in her hands and wondered what had been said of the missing lock. On the sink counter sat a dish of small, decorative soaps that Beatrice's mother always brought out when they had guests. They were star-shaped and about the size of a dime each. On one occasion a few years before, Beatrice's mother had risked a change and bought heart-shaped soaps instead. However, she hadn't liked the look of them on the counter between the two faucets and quickly sent Beatrice out to the store to replace them. As a young child, Beatrice had always thought the small stars looked like candies. Once, while her mother and father entertained work friends downstairs, she popped a few pieces into her mouth, unable to subdue her curiosity any longer. The very second they landed on her tongue, she spat them out into her hand, gagging and spitting up froth. She frantically wiped her lips and rinsed her tongue in the sink. Even though she had done it with the bathroom door safely shut, she still suffered with the taste of embarrassment for the rest of the night and well into the following morning. Beatrice stood and spent a few minutes washing her hands with one of the small white stars, but once this was done, she found herself back on the toilet seat. She stared into her cell phone, wondering if there was anyone she could call, but she came up with no answer. She had met several nice people in her freshman year of college, but she hadn't spoken to any of them in over a year, not since she left Colorado. Given how abruptly she had left at the end of the year and how few goodbyes she had doled out, she doubted any one of them would respond to a text-seeking only casual conversation. The girl who had lived in the dorm room next door to hers, a nice girl, warm and breezy like her California hometown, had texted at the start of September, asking when Beatrice planned on returning to the dorms. But by then Beatrice's incident had already occurred, and her phone was still confiscated at the time, locked up in some hospital orderly's drawer. By the time she got it back, the school year had already begun, and her new friends had finally stopped calling. Beatrice had never really had friends before. Her first day of kindergarten, she wouldn't let any of the other children come near her. At recess, she stationed herself at the highest point of the jungle gym and wouldn't come down until the final bell had rung. Jules Cartwright had been in that same kindergarten class. She wore shiny Mary Jane shoes that she wiped down whenever so much as a fleck of mud touched them. She kept butterfly stickers in her backpack and stuck one in the corner of every homework sheet before she turned it back in complete. At parent-teacher conferences, Beatrice's teachers expressed worry that Beatrice wasn't connecting properly with the other children. Mary always waved the thought away. She's a moody child, she would say. She'll outgrow it, of course. She hadn't grown out of it, though. Mary organized playdates for every weekend, and every Saturday Beatrice went to a classmate's house for the afternoon. They ate healthy snacks and drew in coloring books and tumbled around in backyards. Beatrice said her yeses and pleases and thank yous. When Mary came to retrieve Beatrice, her hosts always sent them off with overenthusiastic goodbyes. Beatrice would turn around in the back seat of her mother's SUV and watch relief soften their stiff smiles and waves. Did you have a good time? Mary would ask. I guess, Beatrice always said. Nothing disastrous ever occurred on those days, but for whatever reason, the families never asked Beatrice back again. There came a point where Mary ran out of East Village families to court, so she let Beatrice stay at home to watch television while she went out with her own group of friends. The summer before junior high, Beatrice's father suggested Beatrice go see a child psychologist. 
Mary had begrudgingly agreed, but only with written agreement from both Beatrice and Arthur that neither of them would say anything about it to anyone else. Beatrice had signed the contract in a purple pen, at that point still playing with the look of her signature. The whole thing was unnecessary, of course. She had no one to go to and tell. But she had liked the ceremony of it all, the swooping lines of her cursive letters and her mother's clean type on the creamy surface of the stationery, the letters M.W. for Mary Walls embossed in gold at the top. The child psychologist was nice enough. She wore her hair in a tight bun at the top of her head and kept a newton cradle on her desk. Beatrice liked to start and end the sessions with a pull on the leftmost metal ball. She liked to close her eyes and listen to the clack of metal against metal, clicking in time with her tongue. The psychologist told Beatrice that all she had to do was make one friend. When she said this, she would fold her hands on the desk, the right on top of the left. One friend, she said, and everyone would stop worrying, and maybe Beatrice would be happier too. When school started for the year, Beatrice joined the Red Cross Club. She didn't particularly care for the community projects, but she appreciated that the club met three days a week at lunch, so she had somewhere consistent to sit. Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, she ate her salami and cheddar cheese sandwich silently next to Melissa Williams in the multi-purpose room, while Jules Cartwright spoke about her latest idea for a fundraising campaign. Eventually, Melissa let Beatrice sit next to her outside the library on Tuesdays and Thursdays as well. Beatrice wasn't sure if this counted as friendship, but it was enough for Mary to pull her out of counseling. While Beatrice couldn't say she missed the psychologist very much, she did miss the Newton cradle and the clean and crisp sound it made. Beatrice had always thought that all she needed was a change of scenery, a different group of peers to choose from. When high school and college applications came around, she applied exclusively to schools out of state. And Beatrice had genuinely liked her college in Colorado, liked it more than she had ever liked anything, although admittedly the bar was low. She appreciated the jagged mountains, the open spaces, the dry air. She liked the sandstone blocks of the arcades, the weathered busts of the school's stoic founders. Beatrice told her parents she chose Colorado for the academics and the cozy college town, but mainly she had gone there because in many ways it seemed nothing like their home in Pennsylvania or the East Village wives and their daughters. But nothing had really changed. Beatrice felt no more alive out there than she had back at home with Mary and Arthur, she made no friends other than the casual acquaintances she made in the first couple weeks. Around winter quarter, the exhilaration of being so far away from home had completely dissipated. In the spring, she stopped going to class completely. When her father saw her transcript at the end of the year, he suggested a year off to collect her bearings. He said he'd talk to her mother in private, assured her that Mary would come to see it their way. Beatrice had agreed, feeling sorry for him. Her father, the handbag, was always so hopeful. She had let his optimism infect her, never stopping to realize what another summer with Mary could do. Beatrice liked to fantasize about what would have happened had she stayed in Colorado. Maybe the overwhelming sadness would have passed. Maybe all she needed was another week, another month, another year. Maybe just a little more patience would have finally allowed her to feel alive. The door to the bathroom swung open, and Beatrice bolted to her feet. She had stupidly forgotten to lock the door, so accustomed to being unable to lock her own. Jules Cartwright stood in the doorway. Beatrice suddenly felt cold, as if all her blood had drained from her body. 
When Jules's gaze met Beatrice's wide eyes, she stopped dead in her tracks, teetering in her high heels. Sorry, the door was... I should have knocked, Jules said. She had a pink tinge to her cheeks. Beatrice wondered if she was embarrassed or just warm with champagne. Beatrice looked to the floor and stepped to the side so that Jules could move past her. Jules must have thought to do the same thing. The two stepped simultaneously in the same direction. Beatrice froze, hoping that if she just stood still, Jules would eventually move past her, but the longer she stared into the shiny vinyl of Jules's shoe, the more confused she became as to why it wasn't moving. When she looked back up, Jules appeared just as perplexed as Beatrice felt, her mouth hanging partially open and her brow furrowed. Do you need to go? Beatrice asked uncomfortably. Jules relaxed slightly at the sound of Beatrice's voice, her mouth loosening into a sheepish smile. No, actually. I was just trying to find someplace quiet. You know, away from all the moms. Beatrice began to apologize, but Jules closed the bathroom door behind her, and she fell silent. They awkwardly faced one another, motionless, listening to the murmur of voices drifting up from downstairs and creeping under the crack of the door. I'm just going to relax in here a little bit, said Jules after some time, her syllables slow and measured. It's cool if you want to stay. I know how much these things can suck. Beatrice knew in that very moment that Jules had seen her from the patio. Jules had seen her walking away, Mary's barking laugh ambling after her. Beatrice turned away from Jules and sat back down on the lid of the toilet seat. She stared into one of the clawed feet of the bathtub. Out of the corner of her eye, she could see Jules lower herself to the white tiles of the bathroom floor, lean against the sink's cabinets, and pull the end of her dress over the cross of her legs. Beatrice and Jules had gone to school together all the way through the 12th grade, but in all that time, Beatrice had never learned anything about Jules that measured up to what she knew Jules now knew about her. She knew that Jules was a pleasant singer, that she was a moderately talented athlete, that she was an honor student all through high school, that in junior high she wore excessive amounts of perfume. She knew Jules looked pretty in a pageant gown, that she could twirl a baton with flair, that she played board games with the elderly on weekends. She knew that Jules had a big group of friends, a big smile, and a big personality. So big she filled up rooms, leaving only small spaces for people like Beatrice to occupy. You go to school in Colorado, right? Jules asked. Yes, I did, Beatrice replied. Is it nice out there? Jules said. I guess. It was a lot like here. Beatrice suspected that she and Jules didn't have a single thing in common. She was sure that Jules had never felt so disconnected, so inhuman. Once Beatrice had woken up in her bed and spent an entire hour staring at her own arm, running her fingers over the crook of her elbow and feeling absolutely convinced it didn't belong to her. It seemed dead somehow, like a branch rotting off a tree. She was sure Jules had never done anything like that. She was even more sure that Jules had never threatened to kill herself, never gotten herself institutionalized for the summer. "'My mom dragged me here tonight,' said Jules. Beatrice could feel her looking at her. "'She's trying to knock some sense into me.' "'What did you do?' Beatrice heard herself ask, to make her mad. Her lips had only recently begun to feel like they were hers again. She brushed them with her fingertips, trying to feel familiarity in their creases. Jules shrugged at her. "'I'm shit at college,' she replied. 
I failed my calculus class and gained 11 pounds. She grabbed one of the cabinet handles and clacked it a few times against the wood. My mom was bothering me about it, so I called her a fat bitch, which I guess makes me a hypocrite. Jules released the handle and grabbed the edge of the sink, hoisting herself to her feet. She studied her reflection in the bathroom mirror and adjusted the straps of her dress on her shoulders. Beatrice dared to turn her head towards Jules and watched as she started to run her hands over the marble countertop. Her fingers rose over the silver faucet and the porcelain drinking cup, traced the rim of the flower vase, followed the sharp edge of the mirror, and settled on the edge of the oval soap dish. These are cute, Jules said, pinching a small soap star between her right thumb and index finger. They look like little candies. Beatrice had a sudden, overwhelming desire to tell Jules everything. Everything she was thinking in that moment, everything she was feeling, every bit of unbearable frustration she felt toward Mary and the party that night. She wanted to tell her about Colorado, about what it was like to cut her arm deeper than she had meant to, about how her father had needed the police chief's help to kick down the bedroom door. She wanted to tell her how she despaired during those weeks at the hospital, how she felt like she wasted her opportunity there, like she had wasted her opportunity as a child with the Newton balls swinging back and forth on that desk. She wanted to tell her how the nurses gave her pills, but when she put them in her mouth, she forgot how to swallow. She knew that if Jules were to just look at her in a certain way, she would confess to everything. To hating Jules when she saw that champagne flute in her hand, to feeling alone for so long, to being so ashamed for still wanting to die, trying to eat those small soaps like candy when she was such a very young child. Jules fiddled with the soap in her palm for a few seconds before letting the pieces tumble back down into the dish. Jules glanced at Beatrice, offered a small smile, and returned her attention to the mirror. She brushed her fingers through her hair and tucked it behind her ears when she was done. Beatrice released a breath that she had been holding captive in her chest. Jules wasn't going to ask her anything. It saved them both the energy, Beatrice supposed. Your house is really nice, said Jules. She was watching Beatrice again, waiting for her to say something. Beatrice could feel her own muscles coiling, her mouth and throat and jaw unbearably tight. Thanks, Beatrice finally replied. I like your dress. Thanks, Jules said, smiling at her. We should probably go back down soon. Beatrice nodded in agreement, and she couldn't help but think that maybe in another universe she would have found the right thing to say. Or maybe she would have learned what to say in a lecture hall in Colorado, or maybe she would have met Jules somewhere outside of the reach of the East Village Wives Club. Maybe they would have been each other's first friends. Or maybe they would have exchanged glances for the first time in a quiet hospital wing and immediately banded together sworn at the nurses to hand back their laces, gagged at each other over the orange juice in condiment cups with the crinkled aluminum covers. Maybe, had they found one another at any other time or place in the world, just a look would have been enough. Just one look and Beatrice would finally understand how to feel alive. But in this universe, Beatrice could hear Mrs. Abernathy's heels on the stairs, and her mother's laugh reverberating through the hallways. It was time for her to go back down and smile again for a little while, and maybe by the end of the night, she would earn back the lock on her door. Um, Mark's going to come and join you. Cool. Hi, Jordan. Hi. Thank you for being here on Off the Page. Yeah, 
Thanks um, for having me. This is very exciting because you are the first undergraduate uh, to appear on the program. Uh, we've had Stegner Fellows and Jones Lectures in our previous episodes. And you are also a former student of mine. Yeah. Um, Novella Salon. Novella Salon, winter 2018. Yes. Give it a shout out. Um, so I just love to begin by asking you what were the origins of this piece? Um, what inspired it? And what was sort of the writing process like? Yeah. So, yeah, it was a process. So I think the original version of Beatrice was like a very different character. I th we had a, a, a writing exercise in like beginning fiction, which I took as a freshman. And I had to come up with like 12 things about a character. And I just had come up with this very sad, lonely character named Beatrice um, through that exercise. Um, but like, other than the name, she didn't really resemble the character of this story. Like she was a, a musician and she had a younger sister and she... And I mean, her her mother wasn't at all present in like that that version of the story. Um, but then a year later, when I took um, intermediate fiction with with Austin Smith, we did a you know a short story um, writing assignment, and I I repurposed Beatrice for that. Um, and just I don't know I don't really know how the like the plot, like the like the the party scene came to me. I think we'd we'd read The Dead recently, so maybe it had something to do with that. Um, and so, yeah, so I just had this idea for 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 Beatrice to be at this party and not wanting to be at the party and trying to avoid everyone. But then, obviously, she has to to confront people and her own issues and 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 whatnot. Um, and so I like mapped out everything that I thought could happen in the story, like just wrote like a really long, like almost like a prose poem about what the story was going to be. And then like in a night, just like t transformed it into a, into an actual story. Um, cool. Um, that's so interesting. You, you added more about the mom, because I think when I was reading the story, I wondered, and I was so struck by the gesture of the contract that her mom makes her sign when she goes to the school, uh, the child yeah. counselor. That felt like a really revealing gesture. Um, do you see the mom as being the source of a lot of Beatrice's problems or just exacerbating them? I mean, it seems unfair to like place all the blame <laughs> on her because um, I feel like Beatrice is a inherently sad person who is just unfortunately placed in an environment that wasn't suited to her her personal needs but but i mean for sure her mother is not providing her with the the support she needs like she's sharing her personal information with people at the party and she's you know not super willing to acknowledge that she really has a problem um yeah so i mean she i think everyone including beatrice is participating in this sort of toxic environment the story doesn't really ascribe any one reason for for Beatrice's sort of inability to participate in life because there there is no one cause. It's just this sort of condition that may or may not resolve itself someday or may may improve. Um, and I thought that that was very realistic and and mature. Um, uh, I, I I'm curious about the world of this story. Um, it felt to me. Um, almost like a John Cheever-like world of, like, 
country club wives and lots and lots of organizations and and gossip and surveillance and cocktails. Yeah. And, um, I was just wondering sort of where that came from. Like, what inspired you to write about this kind of leafy, privileged enclave? I, I don't know. I mean, it's 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 a kind of environment that's always fascinated me. And it, I mean, I don't have any personal experience with that. I grew up in a very liberal, like, California suburb um, with, you know, parents who who did not make me go out to, to social events. But um, I don't know. I, I watch a lot of TV. So maybe, you know, gossip, gossip Girl just kind of ingrained itself into my psyche. Um, but I mean, I think, but I mean, I feel like a party is such always such a, an excellent place to start a story because there's so many characters and different kinds of interactions and and drama. Um, I feel like every book club meeting has at least like one pair of people who can't stand each other but don't want to don't want to say anything. So I feel like there's always um, it's always a, a, a good place to start when you want to, you know, come up with characters who, who dislike each other. Yeah. I mean, there's a wonderful sense of like she's trapped in a fishbowl, you know, and is under all this surveillance and, you know, everywhere she turns, people are either observing her or commenting on her. And there's like this inescapable quality. Um, do you have experience with book clubs? Um, I think my mom may have been in a book club when I was younger, but I think with like my preschool teachers, um, but I don't, I don't have a lot of memories of that. Um, but I always, I really, I always really liked the idea of a book club of, of, you know, people coming together for not necessarily to talk about the book, but just to, to have that little social club. Um, I always wanted to be in a book club, but there were, there were no good opportunities for it. Um, well, the day may still come. Um, but you're right. I think they very often are a pretext for drinking and talking. Right. Which is fine. Um, I'm curious about um, the role Jules plays in the story. Um, it's it's interesting to hear you say that the mother was not always such a prominent figure. Because I think when I was reading the story, I expected the final confrontation would be like some sort of showdown right. with mom. And I was I was happy that that didn't happen, that there was this unexpected turn. Did you always know that the story would end with this interaction with Jules? Yeah, the, that, the ending has always been like that. Um, Jules has always been like the guess maybe the major foil for for Beatrice in the story I kind of was interested in in the idea of a of a person kind of coming into Beatrice's life who who maybe shouldn't um be relatable to her or who should represent everything that Beatrice is not um yet um then like introducing maybe this hint that maybe there's something connecting them but something that that something is something that they can never quite access because of the environment they're in. Um, so yeah, I was, yeah, Jules was always an important character. Yeah. Um, I have two other sort of craft related questions for you. One is, um, the, the exact nature of like the incident is kept for a long period of the story fairly vague. And even, and even when we do sort of learn exactly what happened, it's not, there's not a lot of page time devoted to it. It's kept sort of almost like in the the periphery of the story's vision. And I wonder if that was sort of an intentional choice or if that was just sort of how things naturally evolved. Um, I mean, I never, 
I, I feel like I know what happened, but I never really felt that it was necessary to include it in the story. Um, partly, I just felt like including like all the details would be too melodramatic for a story that's already kind of kind of out there and in, in terms of like having these kind of ridiculous characters and scenarios. Um, and also, I just felt like it, I mean, I had, there was this question that I was asking myself of whether it, it really mattered what had happened because it felt like the, the fallout was really much more interesting than the event itself. I think that's a really mature writerly instinct um, because I think that something that extreme in, in fiction kind of a little goes a long way, like, yeah. I don't know, a spice in a dish or something. That's a weird analogy. Or, But also I think what you're saying about not wanting to sort of pathologize or revel in some sort of abject portrayal of mental illness is also a really smart one. Um, the other question I had, and this is not so much a question as just a, a compliment, I suppose, is I really thought you do a great job of um, having these concrete objects in the story that are really resonant. I'm thinking particularly of the Newton cradle in the psychologist's office and, of course, the star-shaped soaps. And I wonder um, if you have a memory of how those sort of objects enter the story, if if they always had significance or if they were just like, well, I got to have something in the bathroom. What would be in the bathroom? Yeah. Um, yeah, so the, the, the soaps were in the original draft. And, I mean, I'd always just really like, you know, when you go to a fancy hotel and they have like the little little fancy soaps that there. I mean, I felt like that was something that that would exist in Beatrice's home. I felt like something her mother, as aspirational as she is, <laughs> something she would want to, uh, to to bring in for a certain aesthetic. Um, and the Newton Cradle, that that was that came later. That was in the the, the more recent revision. Um, yeah, Newton Cradle is also something. They just they're they're an object. It's an object that I find fascinating personally. Um, I, I'm not totally sure why, but I remember being a kid and just really, really enjoying, you know, just that that back and forth motion and you know the the sounds and the and kind of like the evenness of it all. And um, as far as you know, focusing on on specific objects, um, that was something that. Uh, I learned in in, in, a, in a writing class. I I, rem- I don't know who whose class it was, but you know they, they the instructor was really emphasizing how how objects can um can really bring bring a story to life and be, can be a good you know point for 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 jumping off and, and into into scene. Um, so I guess in the way that was a very intentional nod to um to my very, very generous instructors <laughs> over the years. Well, I think they also, for me, kind of bring me closer to Beatrice's inner life when I think of her missing the sound of the Newton Cradle or even or even her appreciation of her signature yeah. on the contract. Like, there's just something really idiosyncratic and 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 memorable about those details and i think maybe they contribute to her feeling like a fully dimensional person right um, i think part of it too is that she's it, it, she's not like interacting with people in her world she's not you know having these huge like social moments so there needed to be something that she could you know kind of hold on to um because i didn't want to just be trapped in her her own interiority of course so maybe her her interest in, in objects as opposed to people 
yeah. um, I think is something that that kind of says a lot about her world and, and, and how she interacts with it. Yeah. Well, um, maybe take a step back now and just ask you how you found your way to writing in the first place. Yeah. So I feel like, yeah, I feel like, I feel like I have kind of the same story as a lot of, of people who write and that I, I've been writing for as long as I can remember. Um, when I was um, really little, like when I was just kind of learning to write, I used to um, just copy out like books onto like binder paper. Like I had this like series of like chapter books about like heroic girls who like go on adventures and I would just like open up the book to a page and just copy word by word. Um, so I guess... It was plagiarism, but it was also kind of my <laughs> the first time I was interested in actually like writing out a story, and and eventually that transformed into me wanting to to write my own stories. Um, I also wanted to ask just like what writers have been sort of influential on your work, or who do you turn to for inspiration? Yeah, so I want to read more than I am currently reading because um, I feel like the only time I ever really expose myself to like good authors is when or when like I'm in a writing class and I get assigned someone to read. Um, but like, you know, growing up, I was always like I was into the Harry Potter books and I like, loved kind of the, 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 the magical world of that. And, you know, the writing was also very strong and something that I wanted to emulate. Um, I also really like Chuck Palahniuk and his kind of like crazy kind of that kind of wild un unrestrained style um and like the bluntness of, of of the way he expresses ideas which is something that i think has probably found its way into into some of my my writing um and i guess and i mean this story um the lock in particular probably has some some joycean influences just as a consequence of reading the dead um, yeah, but I want I want to expose myself to more writers because I feel like as someone who writes a lot of short stories, I don't actually read a lot of short stories, um, which is probably something I should do for craft purposes. Um, yeah, but I just bought a bunch of I bought a bunch of books recently, like flash fiction and short story collections. And, you know, it has like you know Diaz in it and and you know people I don't know also. So. Hopefully I'll, I'll have a better answer for, for, for that question soon. Project for the summer. Jordan, thank you so much for appearing on Off the Page. Thank you for having me. This is a, a really cool opportunity, one that I was not expecting. So thank you very much for this. This episode was produced by Alessandra Wolner, Maddie Curtis, and our talented team of producers, editors, and coaches. Aaron Wu, Sienna White, Aparna Verma, Yui Lee, Claudia Haymack, Christopher Laboa, Victoria Wan, and Jet Hayward. Thanks to Leland Quarterly for their editorial help, especially Zui Zhao. Thanks to Jonah Willingans for his supervision, and to Ivan Bolin, Christina Ablatza, and Osei Jackson at the Creative Writing Program. For their generous support to the Stanford Storytelling Project, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden.